The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We've been talking about the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, and we are now on uh, week five or so, so that's what we're doing today. We're going to continue in that series. Uh, the emphasis here is, well, I'm, let's flip to 2 Corinthians 13.5 by way of reminder. 2 Corinthians 13.5, that's been our theme verse, 2 Corinthians 13.5. This is uh, written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote this to believers that he knew, and he was their pastor. As he was moved by the Spirit of God, he concludes this book with this exhortation for a Christian. So if you're a Christian this morning, this is for you, it's for me. If you are not a Christian, then you need to consider the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the creator of the universe, who is your judge, the judge of every soul. He can be your savior if you embrace his gospel, his good news that he died for sinners. If you acknowledge your sin and repent of your sin, plead with him, cry out to him, the Lord Jesus Christ understanding his gospel, then you can be saved. You can become a Christian. You can be adopted spiritually into the family of God like that. With that sincere prayer, crying out to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you will be a child of God. If you haven't done that, then you're not a child of God. You're a child of the devil, Jesus said in John 8. That's a frightening prospect. But I'm giving all that background just to remind us all here that what I'm talking about today, this is for believers, this message. This is for spiritual disciplines. If you're not a Christian, you can't do what I'm about to tell you, what God expects. So this is for Christians. Um, this is for the people in our local church primarily, is our family. If you're not a Christian, we welcome you to listen in. Eavesdrop, if you will. And we hope it'll be enlightening, maybe even convicting. We pray life-changing. The spiritual disciplines. Here's our theme verse, going back to 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul says to Christians, test yourselves. That's a command. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourself, Evaluate yourself to see if you are really a Christian. This is a great verse for people in America. Because we're a Christian nation. Not, there is no such thing as a Christian nation. It's an individual issue. God created us as individuals. When we die, we stand before Jesus Christ as an individual. Not with your family, not with a relative, not with a nation. So this is very personal. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test your, examine yourself to see if you have true faith. It's quite a challenge. And then he repeats it basically and he says, examine yourselves with an exclamation point. There it is. So that's what we've been trying to do. Trying to practically think about this. Wow, we are called on a regular basis as a, a habit and actually a Christian discipline to evaluate ourselves, not in an overly uh, gross kind of uh, way where you're introspective over the top. It's just from a biblical point of view, you know, stop, pause occasionally in a healthy kind of way and just evaluate yourself. Kind of like, you know, when occasionally when you step on the scale. That's an evaluation. That's healthy. It's a good thing to do. It's a good reminder. So that's what he's talking about here. So this is an objective, healthy uh, reminder to evaluate ourselves, where we're at in our Christian faith, uh, to make sure that we truly are believers. And so that's, and I've just been walking through some scriptures and some, throwing out hopefully some practical tools of biblical principles to help us do that, to do an objective evaluation of ourselves. Because we don't do that very often, unless we are called to do it with accountability and uh, a deliberate process. So this is good for all of us. It's been good for me. I've been examining myself every week through this paradigm, through these scriptures. I don't like doing it. Sometimes it's uh, scary. Sometimes it's frustrating. Many times it's convicting. Sometimes it's encouraging. But that's good. We have to be honest. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith and examine yourself. So that's what we're doing. Uh, so if you got your hand out there, today's sermon is Spiritual Discipline, Part 5. 
Uh, but the discipline today is really spiritual discipline number four. Scripture reading. Scripture reading, I called it. Those of you who haven't been with us or those of you who don't remember because a few weeks have gone by, we've done three other spiritual disciplines. By the way, I, I don't think I've given an explicit definition of spiritual disciplines formally since I started the series, so let me do that now. I've kind of described it, but here would be a definition of a spiritual discipline of what I'm talking This is a biblical spiritual discipline. So here it is, quote, required routine Daily practices, the required routine or regular practices, which provide health, spiritual health, and prevent disease, spiritual disease. So those are the spiritual disciplines. The required routine daily practices or regular practices which provide spiritual health and prevent spiritual disease. They are required. What I mean by that is that they're commanded by God. They're in the Bible. If you're a Christian, you're obligated to do them. And by routine or disciplines, what I mean are the uh, basic things that should come. By routine, I mean second nature. And the parallel are things that we do in our daily life, sometimes without thinking as we get into routine, to maintain a healthy life, to help us grow, but also are preventative for us in our practical life, things like brushing your teeth, flossing your teeth, preferably every day. It's routine. It's important. Having a healthy breakfast, uh, 20 minutes or so or more of exercise, cardio each day, that's a good discipline. Cleaning your clothes, doing the laundry on a regular basis, changing your clothes on a regular basis, showering every day, doing the dishes, Every day, feeding the pets if you have them every day. You can't just, oh, I'll, I'll feed them today and uh, Monday and then on Thursday if I get around to it. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You're depriving your pet of health if you do that. So it's a daily routine, strict discipline. Watering the plants. Daily, I have a tomato plant about two feet high now in the backyard. If I go one day, without watering it, it begins to wilt. And it makes me feel sad. And my tomato, he's yelling at me. How dare you? If I go two days, it's about to die. Three days, whoosh, too late. That's what I'm talking about. This is a daily routine of spiritual disciplines to maintain our health and prevent disease. It's just, these should just be fundamental and basic to the Christian life. Now, one of the reasons that I'm going through the church disciplines or the spiritual disciplines is because of our, the nature of our congregation, the demographics. We've been around for 15 years or actually as a church uh, merged for about going on three years now. So there's a lot of different people and a lot of new people, a lot of new folks and some people who uh, haven't grown up in the church. And so maybe they haven't been at a church or haven't been exposed to the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. And already it's been incredibly helpful. I've gotten a lot of feedback so far on the three previous spiritual disciplines that we've already addressed, like when I preached for two Sundays on the spiritual discipline of giving, giving to the local church. Had many people come and tell me, either thank me or tell me that they were feeling guilty that they hadn't been doing it, or literally some just saying, I was totally ignorant. I didn't know what God's expectation was about giving, and now I'm going to do it according to the Bible. I'm like, amen. That's awesome. That is the word of God at work in the heart of a person, of a believer. So that's the kind of feedback I've had on the discipline of giving. By the way, how's your giving? Remember... Proverbs 3.10, give to God from the first of all of your income, all of your income, from the first of all of your income off the top, as an act of worship. Then after we did giving, the discipline of giving, we did the, the, giving, uh, the discipline of prayer, emphasizing uh, your prayer life, corporate life, and individual prayer life, and how that uh, needs to be just fundamental. And since then, I've had uh, people come and talk to me or send me emails, text messages, personal conversations, talking about how they were convicted. Uh, it was encouraging. They're trying to beef up their prayer life. They're having more success. In their, they've set new goals regarding their prayer life. Pastor Cliff, I'm praying more, Pastor Cliff. I'm actually praying on my knees now during the week when I can. I'm praying three times a day. I'm like, wow, you're doing better than I am. Whoa. So that was just great, great feedback. And then last week we talked about serving, basic discipline. If you're a Christian, you need to belong to a local church, and you need to be serving on a regular basis. And we talked about that last week. If you, didn't, if you weren't here or didn't hear the sermon from last week, you need to 
uh, get it. We've got it uh, recorded. And you need to listen to all of these and search the scriptures and see these basic Christian disciplines that God requires of us. And so I had several folks, again, from hearing what the Bible had to say about service. And they were asking me, where can I serve? I need to serve. I want to serve. I haven't been serving. I know I need to. I feel guilty about that. So if you're a Christian and you're a, especially a member of this church, if you're a member of the church, you need to be able to answer the one basic question, and that is, what is your ministry? If I asked you, what is your ministry? You should be able to say, this is my ministry. Serving in the nursery is my ministry. Or fill in the blank. It's what I do for the Lord on an ongoing, regular basis. By the way, some people say, well, I don't know where to serve. Well, we have suggestions, but you have to be proactive. We need uh, servants in the nursery. That's one of our biggest needs in the nursery. We need in-chargers in the nursery. And you can talk to Janice Salinas. So there's a need. So the comment that I don't know where to serve, we can fix that problem real quick. And we said it's ideally in keeping with your gift or desires, but if you don't know your spiritual gift in the meantime, you just serve to be faithful to Christ anywhere you're needed. Because that's how he builds the church. So those are the three previous uh, disciplines, giving, praying, and serving. And if you're a Christian, you should never neglect those. They should always be a part of your life in every season of your life to maintain that spiritual health. And so today we're looking at spiritual discipline number four, and that's Bible reading. So let's go to your outline there. And I've got eight points and some scriptures that go along with it. Just to kind of give you an overview of scripture reading from a, what God expects in a biblical manner that will uh, be healthy for your spiritual life and also preventative. It'll also please God. So we'll get to those eight points. But first, as always, how about a few diagnostic questions to see how we're doing on our Bible reading? This is for Christians. Here we go. Question number one. And just answer in your own heart before God because we're doing... 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself, examine yourself with regard to reading God's word because he commands it, taking it in. So these are yes or no questions. They're real simple. Number one, Christian, child of God, have you read the entire Bible? Have you ever read the entire Bible over the course of your Christian life? From Genesis to Revelation. A lot of Christians haven't done that. And make that a goal in your life. It's actually a priority. I can't think of a greater priority in your life. Well, I've seen all the Star Wars movies. Oh, really? I'm not impressed. Have you read the whole Bible? How long have you been a Christian? Because it is the Word of God. And it's, it's, it makes sense. It starts in the beginning, verse 1. This is, God created everything, and he's telling a story. It's a true story. It's history. It's going somewhere. There's a culmination. There's a goal. Jesus is returning. Revelation. So it is God's story of human history. Where it has been, where it is right now, where... It is going, and so you have to read the whole thing, and you got to start in the beginning. So we'll talk more about that. Uh, number two, do you read the Bible daily on a regular basis? Okay, maybe five out of seven days. Do you read the Bible regularly? And I mean private reading time. You're undistracted, and it's a discipline and a routine that you have established. Do you read the Bible daily? Uh, number three, are you currently memorizing Scripture? This is a part of Bible reading. And we'll talk about that as well. Are you memorizing scripture right now? Uh, number four, do you have a designated time for your Bible reading of the day? Some people do it in the morning because that works. I used to do it for years when I had a different job uh, at lunchtime. That worked for me. Some people do it at nighttime. Uh, they have like a stand next to their bed and they got their Bible sitting there and Put some there to save your place, and then they sit down. They got ten minutes before they fall asleep, and they read God's. Wait, there's no better way actually to fall asleep than reading the Bible, listening to God. Do you have a designated time for your Bible reading? And then number five, do you have a designated place for your Bible reading? I'm asking that question because that's helpful. But you can read the Bible anywhere. There's another time I had another job down in Southern California. My my designated Bible reading place was actually in my car before I went off to work 30 minutes this was before I was a pastor so there's our questions 
Uh, if they were convicting, that's good. If they were encouraging, that's great. That's what we want to do. So let's go ahead and look at Scripture reading as a discipline as God requires for the children of God and then just eight principles that may help us along and encourage us with Scripture reading. Starting with number one, Scripture is the living Word of God. Scripture is, and we'll look at two verses there, Hebrews 4.12 and 1 Peter 1.23. I put some verse references in there for you. And I'll just read those to you. These are classic verses. Maybe some of you have these verses memorized. That's great. I am pulling them out based on how they are read in the context. So we're doing justice to the meaning of the verses. Hebrews 4.12. We're going through Hebrews with Pastor Derek. And so far, the beginning, if you just looked and remember in Hebrews chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, the author is giving new information, but he's also quoting the Old Testament a lot, the written Old Testament. And the attitude of the author of Hebrews is he thinks that the written Old Testament is the Word of God. He thinks it's the living Word of God. The Word of God, what do I mean by that? Uh, it's an expression of God's thoughts. God is invisible. God the Father doesn't have a body. God the Father is a spirit. God the Father is bigger than the universe. God the Father has a mind, he has thoughts, he communicates, and the way he communicates to his people, the creation, is through his word, the expression of his thoughts, in a way that we can understand it, and he does that in many ways. He did it through prophets, human prophets that would speak. Sometimes he did it in supernatural, direct, uh, miraculous ways. Other times he had prophets write his word down, and that's called scripture, and so that's how God speaks to us today, is through Scripture, we call the Bible the Word of God. So if you have a Bible and you're reading the Bible, you're actually reading what God thinks, which is an amazing, mind-boggling concept. What does God think? I know exactly what God thinks. God is infinite, but I know exactly what he thinks because he wrote it down in the Bible. And if it's not in the Bible and not written down in the Bible, I don't know what God thinks. I only know what he thinks that's written down in the Bible because that's the way he operates today. So... Scripture is the Word of God. It's the expression, literally, it is the thoughts of God Almighty written down for us. And that is the attitude. Of, look at, uh, before we read verse 12, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. The author says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit said, and then he quotes an Old Testament passage. So the author of Hebrews, who was moved by the Spirit of God, equated written scripture with the Spirit of God talking. The Holy Spirit says. Then in chapter 4, verse 3, For we who have believed enter the rest just as he has said, and then he quotes another scripture, and there he's equating scripture with what God says, Yahweh. So literally, scriptural truth is the word of God. It's not the word of man. Human beings were just mere vessels to communicate God's divine truth, what he thinks. And as a result, since it is the very expression of the very thoughts of Almighty God, and God is the living God, what he says is unique. It's beyond human words. It's called the living word of God. So God's word, his truth, it's living. This is unlike human literature. It's supernatural. The Bible is a supernatural book. It is alive. That's one of its great distinctives. And that's what Hebrews 4.12 says. So let's look at it. Hebrews 4.12, talking about uh, how God communicates to people, both spoken, also through prophets, and also written. And he says, for the word of God, and that word, word there, logos, familiar word, used in reference to Jesus uh, in John 1.1. But here it's in reference to the revelation of God, God's thoughts written down in Scripture. The word of God is living. Zoe, from the word Zoe, to live life. So the Word of God is living. It's alive. Not only is the Word of God alive, it's different than us. It's supernaturally alive. And not only is it alive, it actually gives life. That's what he's getting at. The, the Word of God, because I'm alive and you're alive and a plant is alive, but that's not what he's talking about. The Word of God isn't just alive. It's not just animated. It gives life. That's a huge difference. I don't give life. Plants don't give life. God is the only one who gives life. He does it through his Word. So, Scripture, the Word of God, God's truth, the Word of God, it is living, it gives life, it is alive, and it is also active, and that's the word energy, energetic. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. So, it is powerful, it cuts, it's cutting. 
It divides. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is so sharp, the word of God, biblical truth, that it pierces the human being. And it pierces the deepest inner recesses of a human being. The biblical truth does. That's how living it is. When, you, when it is preached, when it is spoken, when it is memorized, when it is taught, when it is heard, the word of God, it just has a life of its own. And it does its work. And it goes into the inner recesses, the deepest inner recesses of a human being, so deep that it says, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. That's the inner recesses of a human being. That's our immaterial being and all that it constitutes. And the word of God is able to make a distinction and divide literally within the inner man, within our conscience, within our emotions, within our will. Nothing else can do that. But the living word of God, not only does it cut through the inner recesses of our inner being, but also then he refers to the exterior of our body. Because we are, uh, as human beings, we are both physical and spiritual. Material and immaterial combined and integrated as one. And the, the word of God is able to penetrate into us holistically so that it pierces even our soul and spirit, but also our joints and our marrow. So this is metaphorical. It is able, the, the word of God, biblical truth, is able to judge or criticize the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The heart there is not the organ that is beating. The heart there really is the mind or really what it is. It's the collective inner being that makes you, you. And all that that entails, including not just your emotional life, but also your thought life and intellectual life and your will and volition in your conscience, in your soul and your spirit. Everything that constitutes your inner being, that's what the word heart refers to. And that comes from the Old Testament. It means the inner man. So only you know the deepest inner thoughts that you have within your heart. We're good at hiding that from everybody, even those closest to us. And he makes an argument in the next verse in verse 13. Well, you can't hide it from God. He's omniscient. He searches everything. He knows the thoughts of all of us. He knows the whereabouts of all of us. He even knows even the motives behind our thoughts. So this is, this is the word of God. This is how it works. So scripture, biblical truth, is the living word of God. It is dynamic on a supernatural level. There is nothing else like it. Uh, let's look at 1 Peter 1.23. Just uh, before I get there, actually, the end of verse 12, the, the word of God is living, active. It is energetic. It does its work. Even if you don't like it, it does its work. Even sometimes if you don't fully understand it, it does its work. Once you hear it, the Spirit of God will use that probably the rest of your life in your conscience to do his work. God operates. He works through biblical truth. One of the things that the biblical truth does is it judges the thoughts and the intentions. And the fact that you know it's alive and it's energetic, you can see when you get a reaction from people by just quoting a Bible verse. Like Leviticus 17 where it says that homosexuality is an abomination. That's, I'm just reading the verse. And look at the reaction that that will get. That is evidence that it is the living word of God. And people react negatively or adversely to that is because you know what it's doing? It's piercing the very conscience of a sinner. There's all kinds of Bible verses like that. John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I've seen people get offended for 35 years over that verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the only way. I am the truth, the only truth, and I am the life. I am the only life. No one comes to the Father who is in heaven except through me. You talk about an offensive verse. And when people actually hear that and they understand it, and they're not a Christian, you can see the reaction. In their countenance, in their forehead, in the, the blood that rushes and pulsates through their skin as it turns red, they're offended, which isn't a bad thing. It's like, oh, you understand that verse. You got it. So not only do they understand it, but it's thank you, Lord. It's doing its work. This is the living word of God. Nothing else can do this. Human truth can't do this. The great literature of human history can't do this. The wisest sayings of all the philosophers of the ages can't do this. The most inspiring writers in literature can't do this. 
This is the living word of God. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 23, just a complimentary verse. Where uh, Peter says in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, the mercy of God the Father, has caused us to be born again. Uh, are you a Christian? Yes. What does that mean? That means you've been born again. You've been spiritually reborn. You were dead. I was dead. We were spiritually dead in sin. We heard the gospel. We got saved. Who did it? God. It was all of God. It was God the Father. Why did he do it? Because he was gracious and merciful. And that's the only reason. Not because we deserved it, earned it. That's what he's saying. Blessed be the God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, what has he done? He has caused us, who are Christians, to be born again. Brought us back spiritually from the dead. Well, that is awesome. Talking about salvation. God saved you. God caused you to be born again. Well, how did the Father do that? How does God save people? How does God make Christians? How does God cause people to be born again? Well, Peter gives us the answer, same chapter. Look at verse 23. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 um, says, starting at verse 22, Since you, Christian have in obedience to the truth of the gospel, purified your souls, you've been forgiven, for a sincere love of the brethren, you love Christians now, fervently love fellow believers from the heart, because you're able to now, you have the capacity to do it by way of reminder, because, verse 23, for you, Christian, have been born again. You've been born again. He repeats it. How to get born again? Well, not of seed which is perishable, like a human seed, the father gives the seed to the mother so that a baby can be born. That's perishable. won't last. We were born again spiritually through supernatural seed, which is perishable and uh, rather imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. There it is. So how did you become a Christian? Through the word of God, the living word of God, meaning you heard scripture, you heard the gospel, you heard truth from the Bible. You can't be saved apart from truth of the Bible. You can't be saved from general revelation and Standing on a mountaintop and looking at the sky. Oh, God, the creator. Well, that's true, but it's not going to save you. You need biblical truth, special revelation, divine revelation. That's what he's talking about. That's how God saves people. Through the living and abiding word of God. So I wanted to lay that foundation thoroughly because this is really the premise of principles 2 through 8. Boy, if this is true, if biblical truth is divine revelation from God, these are the very thoughts of Almighty God, creator of the universe, and he's taken time to write it down for us and preserve it for us, everything we need to know about life and godliness, and it's accessible for us, then we should make it a priority, shouldn't we? And it is life-changing. It's how we got saved. The Word of God, Scripture. It's from God. So Scripture is the living Word of God. Number two, the Holy Spirit helps us understand Scripture. Uh, you can put 1 John 2.20, sorry, 2.20. That's my fault. 1 John 2.20. Let's look at that verse. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 will be a parallel verse. Uh, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 2 if we have time. But I wanted 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 is a parallel verse to 1 John 2, 20. So John, the apostle, writing as he's an old man, maybe in the 80s, this epistle. He was a pastor. He was a, an apostle and an elder, and he wrote scripture. But he was also a pastor, shepherd, local churches, church planner. Man of God wrote this epistle. He's reminding believers great truths. And he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, he's reminding fellow believers about <clears throat> their unique identity as children of God. Uh, in verses 12 through 18, he says, If you're a Christian, you're in the family of God, and you're in a season of life, you're either uh, immature in the faith and a new Christian, or maybe you're a little more along the way, and so you're kind of uh, a 20-year-old in the Christian faith, or maybe you're a father, meaning you're just mature, you've been walking with the Lord a long time, so you're somewhere in the Christian faith as a child of God. That's 12 through 18. It says, and there are some people who think they're in the family of God, but they're not really in the family of God, because they're not born again, they're not truly Christian. They're like Judas, they're phonies. Sometimes they don't even realize they're phonies, that's called self-deceived, and there are plenty of people like that who think they're Christians, but they are self-deceived. 
deceived. They're not Christian at all. That's why Paul says, examine yourself to make sure you're not like that. Or the people at the end of the age of Matthew 7 who stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to judge and say, Lord, Lord, at judgment day, have we not done all these miracles in your name and preached in your name? And, and Jesus said, no, I never knew you. Those people are self-deceived, sincerely. So that's what he's talking about in 1 John 2.19. There are people in the Christian church who think they're Christians, but they're not. They are either self-deceived or they are purposely deceiving others. And over time, time is a great teller of truth. Uh, the people, uh, people who are unbelievers, they can't, they can't really tolerate hanging around real Christians for very long or in close proximity. And at some point they need a break from these religious people and they got to leave. And they do, and they bail on the church. And maybe they grew up in the church and heard the gospel and walked the aisle and made a confession and got baptized when they were nine. And they looked like Christians for years. And then they're 27 and they walked away from the church and from God and Jesus and the Bible. That is not surprising to God. That is not surprising to John the Apostle. He wrote about it to warn us about it. It's right here. Verse 19. They went out from us. They left the church. They left the flock. They left the family of God. But they thought they were Christians, like Judas. John knew what he was talking about. He could talk personally because he was friends with Judas for maybe years. And at the Last Supper, Judas got exposed, and John had no idea that Judas was a phony of the devil. They went out from us. They left the church. They left the fellowship. But they were not really of us. They were never saved in the first place. For if they had been of us, truly born again in the part of the fellowship, they would have remained with us because that was the promise of Jesus. True Christians persevere. Because you have eternal life, which lasts forever. They remained with us. But they went out. They left. They left the church. They left the faith. So that, in order that, it would be shown, made known, made manifest, so that everyone could see that they are not of us. It's clearly evident to all. But you, Christian, don't let that scare you. So he wants to give a word of encouragement in verse 20. Don't let that scare you. Yes, examine yourself. Don't fret over, oh, am I truly saved or not? Or am I going to lose my salvation? You can't lose your salvation, so you don't need to worry about that. And he gives this word of encouragement in verse 20. But you, child of God, you, true Christian, you who have truly been born again, you who understood the gospel, you who have truly embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And then the Spirit of God was put in you the moment you believe. So you have the Spirit of God living in you if you are really a Christian. And that in light of that, he says, but you, Christian, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, you all know the truth, the basic truth. You know who Jesus is. He is your Savior. The anointing. So what I wanted to point out there was, uh, you know the Holy One. The Holy One gave you an anointing. So if you're a Christian, you have the anointing. Did you know that? If I were to ask you this morning before you came in, and I said, hey, do you have the anointing, or are you the anointed? It'd be interesting to see some of the answers I got. Maybe you would have said, oh, no, I'm not the anointed. Or I don't have the anointing. But yes, if you're a child of God and you're a Christian, you have the anointing. We are confused by that because we hear this weird teaching that's out there where you have to go get the anointing in some special, unique, esoteric way. Or some preachers who say they, they are the only ones that have the anointing. And you've got to do special stuff and be in the inner circle to get the anointing. That is not true. That's a distortion of biblical truth. It's right here. If you're a Christian, you have the anointing. The word being used there is literally what they did with oil to anoint kings, to anoint prophets, to anoint holy things. And God the Father has anointed you spiritually with his spirit of God. That's why he gave you first, Second Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 also talks about the anointing. God through Jesus Christ has anointed you with the Holy Spirit to help you understand truth. That's what that's teaching. That's awesome. So maybe some of you have learned a new truth about the fact of your identity as a Christian. That you didn't know you were anointed. You are. You're the anointed. You are the anointed of God if you're a Christian. Kind of like you're a priest if you're a Christian. You're a saint if you're a Christian. You're an overcomer if you're a Christian. Aren't those awesome? That's who you are. Child of God. So the Holy Spirit helps us understand Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 11 through 13, literally says, you cannot understand biblical truth without the help of the Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit lives in you, then you have a special ability to understand biblical truth. And if you're an unbeliever, the Holy Spirit can help you understand the truth in order to be saved. But you can't understand biblical truth apart from the work of the Holy Spirit who illuminates 
enlightens Scripture for us at a supernatural level so that we can actually understand it. Now, we do need Bible teachers to explain things because that's God's plan from Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. I can explain the Bible to you. You can explain the Bible to somebody else, but you can't make them understand it. I can explain the Bible to you, but I can't help you understand. I can't make you understand it. It's, so I can explain it to you. So it's like, oh, and then when you go, oh, aha, and then ding, the light goes on. Oh, now I see. You know what that was? That was the Spirit of God who did that. That's his job. That's what he does. So I can't make you understand the Bible. I can explain it to you. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to help you truly see it and understand it. Number three, Scripture is food for our soul. Going back to 1 Peter, food for the soul. This is why we need to eat it every day, read it every day. Consider, if you're a Christian, you should consider the Bible, Scripture, your food. Your breakfast, your lunch, or your dinner. Your water and your milk. And your daily vitamins. And how often should you take that in? Well, it just depends on, do you want to be healthy or do you want to get sick? We should be taking in the Word of God every single day. One of the reasons is because Scripture is food for the soul. 1 Peter 2.2 Therefore, putting aside all malice. He just told us how we got born again, and that was through the Word of God, through Scripture, biblical truth, the gospel. Starting at verse 1 in the second chapter. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Verse 2, like newborn babes. So all of us should, so not only am I anointed of God and a priest and an overcomer and a saint, I'm also a newborn babe, regardless of how long you've been saved. But like a newborn babe, we've had some newborn babes born in our church recently. Newborn babes, great illustration. They don't want a whole lot in life, right? They just have a few needs. I want my sleep, I want a dry diaper, and I want food, milk. That's what he's getting at here. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. That would be what the New American Standard says. That's a correct translation. Or the King James Bible, or the New King James Bible, or the uh, CSB, or the Legacy Bible. I'll read it again. Like newborn babes, long for the pure, pure milk of the word, the word of God. Long for it. If you're a Christian, you should have desires if you're really a Christian. And one of those desires should be that you want to be with God in prayer. Another desire is I want to be a part of my local church and serve. And another desire, basic, is I hunger for truth. I want God's truth. I want to know what God says. I want to feed on his, the thoughts of his mind. That's what it's saying. So this is basic for a Christian. We should long for the pure milk of the word. Unfortunately, if you have the NIV, the ESV, and the NET, they eliminate the word word, which is actually in the text, and they say you should crave spiritual milk. And they replace word with the word spiritual. But it's the word. Biblical truth. So we should long for it. And then he says, uh, you should long for biblical truth like a baby longs for milk so that for the purpose of by it you may grow in respect to salvation. There it is. You cannot grow and mature and be sanctified as a Christian without a regular ongoing intake of the truth of the Bible through scripture reading and meditating on it and taking it in. It's like I've given the illustration. It's like an IV. You know an IV they stick in your arm and you need that to feed you or give you water and hydrate you. That should be true of the Bible if you're a Christian. Otherwise, you're going to be like the drying, wilting tomato plant that hasn't had water in two days or three days. So you can't have growth without it, spiritual growth. I, I don't know maybe this is true of you, but I've actually seen and know Christians who have been at various fellowships or churches for five years, 10 years, and more, 20 years, and you see them periodically, and they, they aren't growing. They're Christians, but they're just kind of stagnant. And they stay at that immature level that Paul talks about in Ephesians. They're like children being tossed to and fro 
by every false teaching and every wind of doctrine, primarily because they aren't being fed on a regular basis a healthy diet of the truth of the Word of God, either from the preaching at their church and also the practice and discipline of reading the Word of God on a regular basis. And it, it's sad. So do you want to grow as a child of God? Then uh, an in regular intake of Scripture is absolutely essential. So it is our food. It's, it's our milk and our meat. Can't live without it. Number four, uh, Scripture reading is essential for growth. For growth. And that kind of complements the previous uh, truth here. But I want to do look at 2 Timothy 3.16 because it's such a foundational passage. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 is talking about the Word of God. And actually, verse 17 goes with it together. And Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed. So he is talking about written Scripture here. All Scripture, the Scripture that he was writing, 2 Timothy, the New Testament, all the Old Testament, all of it is God-breathed, inspired by God, God-breathed. It's one word, inspired. Literally, God-breathed is what it means. Scripture, are the thoughts of God, came from God, written down. The very mind of God. So all scripture is God breathed. came from God. It's his thoughts. And scripture, the word of God is profitable. That word there means useful. So the Bible is useful. It's profitable. It serves a purpose. For what? Well, for four things. Two positive, two negative. For teaching. And then two negatives. For reproof and correction. For cor we all need reproof and correction. Because we all go off the rails, right? We all go off in our thinking. We all think wrong things. We all make wrong conclusions. And then the Bible, it, it reins us in and gets us back on track. Thank God for that. We all need that. For reproof, for correction, but also for training in righteousness. It, it trains us how to be holy, how to live a godly life with practical principles by which to live by. That's the emphasis there for training in righteousness. So this fourfold purpose of the Bible, verse 17, so that the further purpose that the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God, the true Christian may be adequate or fit or literally complete or mature. So again, you can't have maturity without the truth of the Bible and a regular intake of it from Scripture. So that the child of God, the Christian may be adequate Equipped for every good work, thoroughly equipped for every good work, thoroughly furnished for every good work that God has called you to do. So the Bible, so that's talks about the Bible is sufficient as well. It's sufficient for everything, every need you have in life. The sufficiency of Scripture. It's there. So this is also a part of ongoing spiritual growth. Number five, uh, Scripture tells us how to think. So look at Psalm 19, the middle of your Bible. I read this a little earlier. Psalm 19, when you have some time, you can read that on your own a little further and study it. It's broken down into two parts. The first, in Psalm 19, the first six verses talk about revelation about God that you can see in nature. That's called natural revelation, general revelation. So when you do go on that mountain and you look up at the sky and you see the stars, there is truth about God that is being revealed to anybody. Regardless of whether you're a believer or not, regardless of your nationality, your language, you just look at the stars and you see, oh, what's the truth there? God is awesome. He is the creator. That's the truth about him that's being revealed in nature. It doesn't tell you that he's a trinity. It doesn't tell you that he's the Savior through Jesus Christ. So the revelation is limited through natural revelation. But we're accountable for that truth. There is a God. There is a creator. He's greater than me. I'm contingent and dependent upon him. That's what the first six verses are about, natural revelation. And then he makes a transition and talks about special revelation. Specific revelation that comes through God intervening and giving us biblical truth. For us, it's written down. So we learn even more specifically about the nature and character of God. More than he's just the awesome creator, but the specifics about him. And so he talks about special revelation verses 7 through 14. So every one of these verses virtually in 7 through 14 in Psalm 19 is saying something that is true about Scripture. So you could apply even these truths to the New Testament. So it's amazing. Verse 7, the law of the Lord or the word of God or Scripture is perfect. In the Hebrew that means without defect. Scripture is without defect. Scripture is perfect. So 
Do we hold to inerrancy? The Bible doesn't have any errors. Yes, why? Because God said his word is perfect. It's without error. It's without defect. The word of God, scripture, that's verse 7. Uh, it restores the soul. It converts people. It turns them around. It, it provides salvation. That's what that verse means. The testimony of the Lord, that's a synonym for the Bible. The testimony or scripture of the Lord is also sure. And that's a Hebrew word meaning reliable. It has been confirmed. It is reliable. Making wise the simple. Making wise, the Hebrew word there is literally open-minded. And it's not a good thing. It's open-minded in a bad way. It's this kind of person who, oh, yeah, I'm open-minded about everything. In other words, he'll listen to everybody and anybody and buy into it. And this verse is saying, no, that's not good. This is not the kind of open-mindedness God wants. That's why it's translated in our English as simple, the simple-minded, literally uh, other translations, naive. Or from the Proverbs, foolish, that's what this word is. Don't be open-minded to everything and everybody. Be discerning. Close your mind to a lot of stuff you hear and see. It's not wise to be open to everything coming down the hill. And the Bible, biblical truth, will allow you to do that with precision and discernment. I should say no to that. That's a lie. Absolutely not. The, the antennas go up. The red flag goes up. Time out. That's what the Word of God allows us to do, to be discerning. So that we aren't naive and foolish, but literally so that we can be wise. Makes, so Scripture makes uh, simple, foolish people wise. Biblical wisdom. And then the second verse, verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are Scripture again. They are right. They are reliable. They have been confirmed. They rejoice the heart deep inside, regardless of what's going on in your life. The commandment of the Lord or Scripture is pure, enlightening the eyes, illuminating the understanding, literally shining the light so that you can see truth. That's what Scripture does. It shines the light in the shadowy, dark stuff that you hear all the time. Oh, I don't know what to think about that. They're saying that. I don't know. Oh, uh, should I believe that? Is that true? And then you take it through Scripture, and it shines the light. It exposes it. If it's a lie, oh, that's a lie. Don't believe it. Oh, that's true. I need to embrace that. That's what it does. That's what the Word of God does. And those two verses put together, what is this saying? It helps us think straight. It helps us think on truth. And that's the parallel verse would be Philippians. Helps us think, Philippians 4.8. So scripture tells us how to think. Number six, we need to read scripture daily. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Read scripture daily. The Apostle Paul writing here at the end of his epistle, again to Christians, and he says, in light of the 11 chapters of theology and biblical truth that I just laid down for you regarding implications of the gospel from chapter 12 through 16, it's here's how you need to live the Christian life. Here's practical application starting in chapter 12, verse 1. And he says, therefore, I urge you, fellow brethren, Christians, by the mercies of God, by God's grace, he'll help you do it, that you present your bodies, that means your whole life, Present tense, in an ongoing, regular manner, as a daily habit, present your whole life, your bodies, as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So we don't go to worship just on Sunday from 1030 to 12. Christians are called to live a life of worship. That's what this verse is saying. Everything I do should be pleasing to God. He's watching. He deserves it. Don't live like, and here's the key, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. And that means the evil world, the fallen world, the false philosophies in the fallen world, the false ideologies, the false teaching, the false news, the false education in the schools, the lies that are being propagated. They are nonstop. They are constant. They're in our face. We're surrounded by it. So that's quite a high calling. Do not be conformed. By this world. Don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. That's literally what it's saying. Don't think like the world. Well, that's easy for you to say, Paul, but we need more help. So he gives us more help. But rather be transformed. Metamorphosis. Don't be conformed, but rather be transformed. How do you do that? By the renewing of your mind. There it is. That's the key. It's how you think. It's our thinking. You are what you think. As man thinks in his heart, so is he, says the proverb in the Old Testament. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your 
heart, and with all your mind. So that's one of the keys to sanctification, growth, growing in discernment, living a holy life that pleases God, knowing what the lies are out in the world. It's being transformed by the constant, ongoing renewing of our mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. What is the will of God? It's right here in Scripture. You're living in sync with what the Bible says. And this ongoing regular intake of biblical truth in our mind helps us do that very thing. It helps us to be transformed. So we cannot be transformed apart from the regular intake of the Word of God by reading the Bible. So we need to read the Word of God daily because uh, the verbs being used here are saying this is an ongoing regular Christian discipline that is a habit of your life. It's a walk. And then Philippians 4.8 says, think on things that are True. Before that, it said, stop being anxious. Stop being, you know what that is? That's thinking the wrong way. Stop worrying. Stop fretting. Stop, stop it. That's Paul. How often do we worry, fret, and have wrong thoughts? Um, every day. How often do we worry, get distressed, and fret? Uh, every hour. <laughs> so Paul's saying, stop doing that and instead replace it with Proper thinking. That's why he goes from Philippians 4.6 to Philippians 4.8. And he said, think, present tense, continue to meditate and think on things that are true. What's truth right here in the Bible? Continually. So just as often as we are tempted and prone to worry and fret then just as often we should be meditating on the Word of God at a minimum daily, and daily intake of God's Word. Uh, growing up at our house with our kids, every once in a while I would remind particularly the boys, even all through high school, remember, if, if you can, read, read a proverb of the day. Just chapter, one chapter. Take you five minutes or less. Why? Because... It was in that moment of four minutes of just reading one chapter in the Bible, you were just getting nothing but God's thoughts. God's thoughts in my thoughts. I want to get back in sync with how God thinks. Think on truth. Uh, Number seven, we need to meditate on Scripture. You could put memorize Scripture there. We need to meditate on Scripture. So meditate from a biblical point of view is something you do with understanding uh, there's comprehension there. This is not Eastern meditation, which is empty. So Eastern meditation, Hinduism, transcendental meditation, and those forms of meditation, pagan meditation, means empty your mind. Empty your mind. Christian meditation is the exact opposite. It's fill your mind with God's truth and understand it with full comprehension as God intended it and as he gave it. You couldn't get more opposite extremes in terms of an understanding of meditation. We don't want to empty our mind. We want to fill it with God's truth, and we, under, we want to understand it when we're thinking about it. This isn't just sheer rote memorization. So that's what we mean by meditate. Uh, we take it in. We fill our mind with God's truth. We ruminate on it. We Think about what it means. We know God is speaking to us literally through the truth of his word and the spirit of God who lives in us, enlightening our understanding so that we can know what the creator wants from us. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, There's so many great verses on this that exhort us as Christians that we should be regularly meditating on the word. I mean, we meditate on other stuff, right? Listen to your favorite song on the radio, some secular song from the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. And then two hours later, you're meditating on it and you're saying out loud and you're singing it. What's that? That's meditation. Ruminating on it. Well, that's what we should be doing with Scripture. Uh, Colossians 3.16. The parallel verse, by the way, uh, is in Ephesians 5, but we, won't, we don't have time to go there. So just looking at 3.16, this is a command. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, let the word Bible, let biblical truth be at home in your heart. Take it in, meditate on it, and memorize it. Uh, let the word of Christ rule in your heart, 
uh, to which indeed, oh, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The Jews, the Hebrews, you know what they did with songs? They memorized them. And some of those are the psalms, and they have those memorized. So that's what he's saying. Meditate on the word of God. Memorize the word of God. It'll feed your soul. And by the way, I've said this before. Did you know that you can't think on two things at the same time? You can't think about two things at the same time. You can, as human beings, as finite human beings, we can only think on one thing at a time. So I can either be thinking about the day and fretting about uh, the confrontation I have to have four days from now or something I'm not looking forward to at work and it's overcoming me and my thoughts are just going over and over and over again and then I'm getting all this angst and hyped up and amped up and emotional and I'm just concentrating and I'm thinking about only that and all the negative. Whereas if you're meditating on the word of God and you pick a Bible verse and you're memorizing it and meditating on it, Something sweet about the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world. Thank you, Lord, for, for loving me. I, there's nothing to love about me. I was sinful. I was your enemy and you loved me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Thank you, Lord Jesus. That's what I mean by meditating. You're interacting with the scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him. Thank you, Lord, that you're willing to save anybody is willing to bow the knee to you. And it's by faith and it's not by works. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. So that's meditation. Now, while I'm doing that, it is impossible for me to be fretting about what I'm going to be facing at work four days from now. Can't do it. I challenge you. So if you're having a hard time with something emotionally overcome, boy, just go to Scripture, pick out a Bible verse, and just start meditating on it and then you will see that God's spirit will take over control of your mind as you focus on him and the reality because it is the living word of God five minutes go by ten minutes go by fifteen minutes of interacting with the word of God and all of a sudden your entire demeanor has changed your entire frame of mind has changed that's God's promise meditate on the word of God memorize scripture uh, and then number eight we need to pray Scripture. Pray Scripture. In some ways, the discipline of reading Scripture comes before all these other disciplines. Giving, praying, serving, and any other Christian discipline you could think of. Bible reading and the intake of Bible truth comes before all of them because it informs how we do everything. You can spend an hour praying every day and be praying the wrong way, not according to Scripture, and it is completely a waste of time. Not only a waste of time, it could be detrimental to your spiritual health. You could be giving, but if you're not doing it in a biblical manner, you're giving the wrong way. You could be serving or think you're serving, but if you're not serving in a biblical manner, then you're not serving at all. That's why this comes first. We do everything in keeping with Scripture. And so when we pray, we need to pray according to Scripture, with Scripture, interact with Scripture. I just gave an example just now of how to do that with John 3.16. Daniel did this, so we'll close with this. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. So towards the end of your Old Testament there in the prophets... Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Daniel in chapter 9, he has been taken as probably maybe a teenager, 13, 14-year-old. He was captured out of Israel, taken prisoner as a young Jew. Nebuchadnezzar slaughtered and killed a lot of Israelites. He preserved Daniel's life, brought him 500 miles to Babylon, his kingdom, raised Daniel in his court, tried to brainwash him with paganism and Nebuchadnezzar's style of life. But God was gracious to Daniel, protected him. He outlived a few kings there in Babylon. And now he, in chapter 9, Daniel has been in Babylon as a prisoner, basically, for 66 years. And then in 539, he's been there 66 years. Uh, and he said, it says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, who was a king, the son of Ahuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, so Daniel's writing this chapter, he said, I observed in the books, what books? The book of Jeremiah. Somehow Daniel got his hands on Scripture. That's amazing. And he had access to the book of Jeremiah, Scripture. And he read Jeremiah. Jeremiah was almost a contemporary prophet. And Jeremiah made a couple of predictions in Jeremiah 25 and 29. And Jeremiah said, this captivity by Babylon is only going to be 70 years long. Then God will set the people free. So Daniel's been in 
captivity for 66 years. Wait, according to Daniel, I'm out of here in four years. This is awesome. So that's what it is. I, Daniel, observed in the book of Jeremiah the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, of captivity in Babylon, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed, and I said, Alas, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. So he's reminding God of Scripture. Verse 6, moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, in Scripture. We have sinned against you, God. We've sinned against Scripture. And just the entire prayer, Daniel is speaking back to God the truths of the Old Testament Scripture. He is literally praying the Bible. He is praying God's will. That's how we need to pray. So, with that, there's our eight principles. Uh, let me give you some practical considerations to think about. So how do we improve in our daily Bible reading? Well, some, some of you Christians, you just love the Word of God so much that you, it's just such a strong desire that Bible reading comes pretty easy and naturally for you. And you just couldn't imagine going a day without reading the Bible. <clears throat> I have a friend like that. He's probably in his 60s now, retired from the military, uh, and he was in the Air Force. He told me 20-some-odd years ago that when he became a Christian in his 20s, he made a vow to God, Lord, since you saved me in your grace... Uh, I, as an act of worship to you, I want to be able to read the Bible every day before I do anything. Before I have breakfast, before I go to work, before I have my agenda. So he told me this 20 years ago. 17 years later, I saw him at a conference. I said, how's that Bible reading going? Oh, it's going great. Have you missed a day since we talked about this 17 years ago? Well, by God's grace, I haven't. It's like, Wow. And that's not being legalistic. It's just he loves the word of God. So it does come naturally, more naturally for some of us. So he was a great example to me. But anyway, uh, here's some basic suggestions. If you're not reading the Bible on a regular basis, just try to read one chapter a day. And build on that. Maybe uh, you got your Bible by your bed or you carry a little one in your pocket and you read one chapter of Proverbs a day. Today's... Uh, July 17th, so I'll read Proverbs 17. That way, if you miss, you're always, you got 31 chapters, you always have a day of the month where you can read a chapter. And even if it's just Proverbs, you know what you're getting? You're getting the wisdom of God for life. How to live life. Or maybe it's a psalm a day. So just read one chapter a day. Start there. Uh, number two, pick a designated time to read your Bible. Form a habit. You brush your teeth, hopefully, in the morning. So you've established routines for other things. Uh, number three, memorize a Bible verse. Meditate on it. Pick one. And then when you've memorized that verse, then turn it into a paragraph. And then memorize that chapter. And then if you keep going, then memorize a whole book. Have you ever memorized a chapter in the Bible or a book of the Bible? I'll just tell you, there's nothing more difficult. It is arduous. It is painful. That's why we don't do it. It's hard work. Memorize a Bible verse. Number four, read with someone. Read the Bible with somebody. They'll hold you accountable. You're married, read with your spouse. You got kids, read at the dinner table. Don't overdo it. Don't go for an hour and ten minutes at dinner. The ice cream melts and they don't get their dessert. Just keep it short and sweet. Uh, you got a friend, a discipler, read together. You're dating, read together. My wife and I, we read together when we were dating and engaged. I remember, I'll never forget it. Philippians. Over and over and over and over and over together. Nothing will knit your hearts closer than reading God's word together. And then finally, number five, listen to exposition. This is, uh, now I'm taking it to a higher level for those of you who want a real challenge at a higher level. Listen to exposition. In addition to your Bible reading, listen to expositional sermons going through the whole Bible. So say you have an exercise routine and you go jogging for 40 minutes a day or you have a drive for 50 minutes of a commute or you're sitting on the train for 55 minutes or... You have exercise time for 30 minutes. Instead of listening to your music, which is fine, pick a Bible and say, I'm going to listen to, I'm going to go through the entire book of Romans, and I'm going to listen to, I'm going to go to Grace to You, their website, and I'm going to listen to John MacArthur preaching through Romans all 320 sermons, one sermon at a time, 45 minutes a sermon, as often as you can. That will change your life. It really will if you do it on a regular basis. Good, you want a good Bible in the expositional teaching through the whole Bible. 
the, the book of Romans, the book of Matthew. The book, I look back at my Christian life. That was one of the greatest things that I ever did as a young Christian. Somebody told me to do that, beginning to end. And you're just taking in. So you're getting this great expositional teaching on the book of Romans while you're also reading it on your own. And your soul will just constantly be filled with God's truth. It will revolutionize your frame of mind, your thought life, your thinking, your emotions. It's amazing. God will grow you with his word. That's his promise. With that, let's go to the Father and thank him for his precious word. Father, we do thank you for this morning, our time together to be with the saints, uh, to worship you. And now, just this time, as we were able to look at many scriptures, and we pray that with your Holy Spirit, you would sustain us, be our teachers, you promised you would. You exhort us to have a desire, but that desire needs to come from you and be sustained by you. Lord Jesus, you told us we need to hunger and thirst after righteousness, but we need your help to do that. And I just pray uh, your ongoing blessing and guidance that we would improve in our daily Bible reading so that we can be in sync with how you think and that we can grow and prove what the will of God is. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the treasure of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.